James was not even converted until he witnessed the resurrection of, of Jesus. And so it's, it's a book, it's a practical book of, of Christian living. It's one of the books that um, in the past when they were trying to decide on canon, that was even debated because people thought uh, James is an emphasis on works and the things that, that we should do and how we should be living. And James, to me, is, 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 his uh, epistle is very clear that we don't do works for salvation, we do works as a result of our salvation. And so one of the things that we see in the world today is that there's many that profess Christianity, but they don't apply the word of God to the situation. They don't walk according to the word of God or live according to the word of God. And this has been an age-old um, problem within the church. And so James is basically writing to uh, the 12 churches that had gone abroad, the, the Jewish converts, uh, but it's also for the Gentiles, and we'll talk about that. But this, it's a practical book of, of living. Um, one of the first series I, I heard on this when we first got saved, so close to 40 years ago, 35 years ago, was Faith With Your Boots On. And so he was talking about our life, living out our life, living out our faith, living out the things um, that he has for us to do, that our, our faith, and as we go through this, we'll see this, that our faith isn't just something that we profess, but our faith is something that we live out. And so as we go through books, and some people say, why do you go through books? Some pastors preach expository. They'll just pick a, a verse or a section of verse, and they'll do it here, and they'll do it there. Um, I like going through books. One of the reasons is, is because God gave it to us this way. James, as he wrote this, um, the the uh, theologians believe that it was actually a sermon letter that was passed throughout the churches to be read as a sermon. So uh, in churches in the old time, it wasn't always like this, where a different pastor was in a, a di every different church preaching. Sometimes uh, the apostles or the church leaders would write these letters and they would be sent around and then they would be read before the congregation. And so that's one of the thoughts about what this letter is. So, for one thing, God gave it to James this way to write. And so, it's written in an order. It's written in a way that, that we can understand it and apply it. You know, chapters and verses weren't really given, I don't think, until the mid-1500s. And that was a wonderful thing, because then, for the first time, we could follow along with one another. And so, as we get into James, one of the things I want to talk about is how we study our Bible, how we look at the word of God and, and the ways that we can apply this. And so we are blessed that we can follow along. If I say James 1, 1 through 4 or 1 through 8, you can open your Bible, you can look at it, you can take your Bible home, you can read through it and, and reminisce through those things. So that's another reason. And so now instead of just looking at the Bible as random verses, we see that God has a pattern that's going on. And we see this in James and so we see the context of Scripture. So as we begin in James, we're going to see sort of the context, who he's writing to, why he's writing it, and then we look at how are we going to apply it also to our lives. So when we study the book, we need to understand this. And, and this is, I think, very important for us to understand. And I get excited when I hear that people are reading their Bible, if it's, if it's in the Psalms, if it's in the New Testament, because the one thing that God, or that the devil wants you to do, is to stay out of the word of God. 
He doesn't want you reading this. He doesn't want you listening to it. And, and, and I've seen this over, you know, 30-some years of ministry that when people start to drift away from the church, they've drifted away from God's word. And as we get far apart from God's word, uh, we get further away from God. So even if you come to church and you're not reading God's word, then we begin to formulate our own ideas. We begin to formulate our own opinions. And, and I like to tell people, you know, my opinion really doesn't matter. What God's word says matters. A lot of times when we're in Bible studies, we'll hear people say, well, I think this is what this verse says, and I think that this is what this verse says. And that's good. The discussion is good, and, and God can speak to our hearts in different ways. But again, in the end, it really doesn't matter what we think about it because God has given us direction. In it. And so we pray and we ask the Holy Spirit to really open our hearts to the word of God, that it might speak to us and that it might change our lives. So why does Satan want to keep us away from God's word? Well, God's word is dangerous. It really is dangerous. You know, Jeremiah 23, it says it's a hammer and a fire. And so listen to this, James, or, uh, Jeremiah 23, 29. Does not my word burn like fire, says the Lord? Is it not like a mighty hammer that smashes a rock to pieces? And when I read that verse, one of the things that I thought about is the scripture that says we have a heart of stone. So when we read the word of God, again, as it will say in, in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between the soul and the spirit, between the joint and the marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. You know, we spend our lives many times running from God, running from the word of God and avoiding what it is that God's word has to say to us. And so when, when I get in the scriptures and I read the scriptures, you know, I'm not just reading trying to say, oh, I want to bring a good message for this person or that person or this or that. When I'm reading in the word of God, it's because God is speaking to me in that word. Every time that I've probably read you know, James in the Little John books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, probably more than any other books in the Bible. I love those, and every time I read it, it says something new to me. It challenges me in new ways. And so we're not going to rush through James. James is a fairly short book, but we're sort of going to take it apart, and we're going to look at it, and we're going to bring in uh, the whole context of what God says through this word. And so when we read this, again, it says it's like a fire. Well, what's a fire used for in the Bible? Anybody remember purification, right? The fire purifies us. If you, uh, when I was little, I remember if I got a sliver, I always remember mom or grandma would go and get that uh, sewing needle. And what did they do? They'd strike a match or put it over a candle. And, they, and I was, what are you doing that for? You're going to try to burn me? Well, of course, she'd always let it cool down. But no, she wanted to sterilize it. She wanted to get the germs off. It's a, it's a purifier. And so Jeremiah says it's, it burns like a fire. When we read God's word, it begins to purify us. It's beginning to address the crud in our life. And then as he says again, it's like a mighty hammer that smashes a rock to pieces. When we read God's word and we see what it says and the Holy Spirit talks to us through the word, it begins to address those things and it begins to break down strongholds. So if God can, or if Satan again can keep you out of God's word, it keeps you away from that purifying process. It keeps you away from that sword 
that says it cuts between the, the, the spirit and the soul. I mean, our very innermost beings, between the bone and, and the marrow. You know, when we read God's word, it convicts us. A lot of people say, I don't, want to, I don't want to read it because I had actually one person tell me one time, I don't read the Bible much because the more, the more I know, the more I, I feel convicted about stuff. And, you know, when we feel convicted, if we don't want to change it, then what do we feel? We feel guilty. And so in order to not feel guilty, in order to accomplish what I want to, I don't want to hear what God's word says. I want God to come with me instead of me with him. So it can be dangerous. So the three things that we're going to look at as, as we get into James, and I don't know how far into James we're going to get today, but what did it mean then? Anytime you read the scripture, especially in the New Testament, but Old Testament is the same way, when you read it, you need to understand or you need to discover what did it mean then? That's the context. What did this scripture mean to the people that it was being written to? And we need to understand it. We need to learn that because it helps give us background of things. It's always nice to know the background or the history of something. You know, when I begin to counsel with people, a lot of times we'll talk about all the way from their childhood to their young adulthood and relationships and that. And you might say, well, what does that matter? Right now I'm having this problem. Right now I'm having this struggle. Well, it sort of can show a pattern of a person's life, maybe a stronghold that needs to be broken. And so background is always good. We want to know the context. And we might say then, what does it mean now? You know, if, if it just meant something for back then, then it's just a history book and it doesn't mean much. So we, but we do look at the context, what it meant then, but we also need to know what does it mean now? The explanation. What does this, this have to do with the world we live in today? And so some teachers, they just teach the historical part. Some people just talk about the things today. I think they're both needed. But the third thing I think we need to address anytime we study the word, anytime we're in the scriptures, is what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? How am I going to apply this to my life? So we see that we learn it. And then we see that we, we bring what we've learned into the present, right? Which can be sort of linking it. And then what we find is how to live it. How to live it. And this is what James is talking about. So when we talk about who wrote James, well, it's pretty obvious it's James. But there was a couple Jameses in the Bible, four uh, that we basically know about. James the younger, or the lesser. Little is known about him, but he's mentioned in the scriptures. James the son of Alphaeus. Again, little is known about him, but he is mentioned and as uh, in theology, and that as you read the historical Bibles and the, and the backgrounds of that, you find that these are different people. We have James, uh, the brother of John. He was one of Jesus' uh, main three people uh, that would go. Uh, Peter, James, and John, we sing a song about that, but we see those three linked a lot of times together in Scripture. And that James was uh, martyred by Herod in, uh, I think it was 42 A.D., um, so he was killed, but he was the James. And then we have James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was brought up a little bit later. And so we know that this book, actually the book of James, was probably one of the first New Testament books written. And, you know, when we look in our Bible, we say, well, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We go through it. Well, they must have been written in that order. They weren't written in that order. If you have a study Bible, sometimes you can look 
and you can see the dates that they were written. But James was either the first or very close to one of the first books written in the New Testament. So the church was very new. It was probably written somewhere between uh, 44 and 46 uh, AD. Some, some uh, writers maybe think it could have been a little bit later into 50 AD. But it was, it was written very early. Um, and again, as I said, James, the writer of this, wasn't a believer in Christ until the resurrection. So there's a lot of, of, of uh, scripture that's gone on. When you read the, the Gospels, you see a lot of history of Jesus and his life. You hear about his family that was around him. Some of his brothers, uh, probably and sisters too, his family, they sort of thought he was Jesus, was, was crazy. I mean, here he is professing to be the Messiah. They were a strong Jewish family. And so James and them, they didn't believe in him. They probably thought they just had a, a demented brother but after the resurrection, and James witnessed this, he became a believer. And he didn't just become a believer intellectually, and that's sort of what this book is about too. He began to live it out. He began to be one of those, those uh, preachers and leaders in the church that would confront error and confront sin in the church. You know, when I read, and, and I the ones I like to read now is like Spurgeon and Tozer and, and Pink and those you know, they spoke the word of God. When you read some of their quotes, and I, I post them every now and then in, in uh, social media, you'd say, man, that's sort of harsh. I don't know if we should say those things in the church, but they were men of conviction. James was a man of conviction. He said, you can't call yourself a Christian and sit on your hands. You can't call yourself a Christian and continue in the sinful patterns that you are. Now, James also understood that we are all sinners, and we're all still going to have sin. But he was talking about these ones that were professing Christ, but we're not living for him. We're not walking in his ways. And so we know that James was very prominent in the early church. It says in Acts 12, 16, 17, Peter motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led them out of prison. That's, this is the account when uh, Peter had got led out of prison and he was giving a testimony about Christ. He says, tell James... And the other brothers would happen. And then he went to another place. So this is where we see James sort of coming on the scene. So James was really writing to the 12 tribes uh, who were the Jewish people. But it was also for us. It was also for those converts. Because if it was for the Jews, we would say, well, how can we get anything out of it if it was written for those people? Well, in Ephesians 2, it tells us, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You know, when we talk about Israel, when you read the Old Testament, you see about Israel. Israel has a very prominent place in biblical past, present, and future. When we read into Revelations, a lot of it's talking about Israel. That's why we've always wanted to be a friend, and I should say with true Israel. True Israel, okay? Because there's a lot of people that call themselves Jewish, but the true Israel, God's people. But he says, don't forget that you Gentiles, you non-believers, you pagans, whatever we were, used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. See, he's talking about these Jews, Paul is anyways, where because of the outward appearance, I present myself as Christians. We see that today a lot of times. Well, you know, he looks like a Christian. He's wearing a suit and tie. He's doing this. They're wearing dresses. They're carrying this Bible. They're, they're wearing their hair a certain way. And, and we, you know, equate that with Christianity. Paul says no. 
He says, it was only on the outside and not in their hearts. In those days, it says, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. So he's saying as Gentiles, they didn't really know the Jewish ways. The Jews uh, from Paul's era were were sort of exclusive. They were that little country club. You can't be part of us because you're not Jewish. And when they would let somebody in, they had this whole process of circumcision and and rituals that you could be a, a proselyte Jew. But it wasn't common. They just sort of shunned people away. We see churches that do that today. They sort of shun people away. You don't look like us, dress like us, talk like us. You know, you're not at everything that we do, and though therefore maybe you should go look for another church. And yes, there's churches that actually tell people that maybe you don't belong here and you should look somewhere else. He says he did not know about the covenant promises. You know, one of the things in the world today is that the non-believers don't know the promises that God has of forgiveness, of grace, and of mercy. And so that's what we do. But it says God has made uh, the covenant promises God has made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. And so Jesus tells us we've been adopted in with him. And so spiritually, when we get saved and have been washed by the blood, spiritually, we become Jews. We have become part of God's people, God's family, God's chosen, God's elect. And so we see this in James. These are the people that he's talking to and he's challenging them. And so I think we're just going to maybe go through the first few verses today. But James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. A bondservant, a servant. A bondservant was somebody who, who um, you know, I owed a debt. And so um, Pat went and paid my bill. So I was no longer in debt. And now I would say I'm in bondage to him. I'm a bondservant to him. When we look at Jesus Christ, that's what we see. We see him, the perfect lamb of God who paid my debt of sin upon the cross and rose in victory from the grave. And so I'm a servant of Christ. But Jesus, he tells us later too, he says, you know, but we're also friends. But it's interesting that James addresses himself this way. He doesn't say James, uh, akin to Jesus, or a half-brother of Jesus, or of the family of, of Jesus. He says no. He says James a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives Jesus the title, the Lord Jesus Christ. So just to clarify, because sometimes we don't always understand this, Jesus' last name was not Christ. Okay, So there's Julie Lindgren. Okay, Jesus was Jesus. Christ was a title. It meant, you know, Messiah, Deliverer, Lord, all the names of Jesus. So Christ was not his last name. Christ was a title. And so he's giving Jesus two names here. Lord. He is Lord of Lord. And so Lord means God. So when he's identifying, he is also equating Jesus with God. And we do that. We know that, right? We believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The three are one. They're all equal. They have uh, separate purposes, but they're all equal. They're all one. And so he's starting out by telling these Jewish people, just in case there's any doubt, I'm a servant of God, but not God only, 
but to my Lord. And who's my Lord? My Lord is Jesus, who is the Christ. And so he wants everybody to know that. He, he doesn't name drop. Sometimes we like to name drop. Oh, I know this person. Oh, yeah, let me tell you some stories about Jesus when he was a young boy. It wasn't about that. He had put himself in a subservient role that he was now um, a servant, a bond servant of Christ, that his brother, half-brother, uh, had died for him, and he was his savior. It says, to the twelve tribes that scattered abroad, greetings. He says, my brother, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so we're not going to get into this far today. But I want you to think about this, because we go through trials. Each of us go through trials. You may be going through a trial now in our life, in your life. The church may be going through a trial now in our life. The Christian community may be going through trials. We, we hear these things that are anti-Christ all the time. And he's telling us, count it all joy. Well, how can we count it joy? Do we count it joy when we get bad news that, that we're sick and may not make it? Or that a loved one is, is going through something terrible? The joy isn't a happiness. The joy isn't, isn't uh, something that, that's manufactured. It's not even something God gives us that says, oh, yay. That's not the joy he's talking about. What does it say? The joy is contingent. It says, call it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this, knowing the result of it. Okay? What's the result? That your faith produces patience. And when you have that patience, it says, let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It's like making a, a, a recipe. Julie, every now and then she's in the kitchen, she'll be, she'll be mixing up something, and, and, and I like that most of the time, because I go in there with my finger, and I'm, mm, that tastes good, or get a little spoon of this or spoon of that. But every now and then she has something that I'll go take, and it's like, what in the world is that? That's terrible. But when she bakes it and it's done, it's delicious. I sort of liken that to the joy that God is talking about. When we're going through trials, they're not joyous. They're not, they're, there's nothing that we celebrate other than this, that God is with us. And we're going to persevere. And we're going to get through it. And when we come out the other side, we're going to be complete, lacking nothing. We're going to be better off in the end than we are now. So as you look at this or as you read these scriptures through this week, think about that. Think about the trials you're going through. We can go grumble to God. We can complain about those things. God wants to hear our petitions. But know this. Count it joy. Be glad in this fact that as we go through those things, God gives us the strength. And as he gives us the strength, it's going to give us patience by the faith that we have. The faith is believing in the things that God is going to do through that. That will be my prayer for you, and that would be where we will pick up next week. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is rich, and your word is amazing. Lord, we thank you for all the books of the Bible. But Lord, we, we thank you, and we ask that you prepare our hearts as we continue through this series in James, because I really believe James has this view of, as I would call it, the blue-collar Christian. 
he's got the view of the practical Christian. He gives us it just sort of plain and simple and, and addresses things in our life that just make sense. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to understand that. And, Lord, as we go through trials, if we're facing things in our life, and, and if we're not now, we have in the past, and we're probably pretty guaranteed of those things in the future, Lord, when these things come into our life, draw our eyes towards you first in faith. And that will be the thing that gives us the joy that you would have us to have. That will be the thing that shoulders up our faith in the word of God. That will be the thing that makes us complete, lacking nothing. And so, Lord, we thank you again for your word and ask your blessing as we go through this week. And we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.